But this morning we're finishing out Ecclesiastes, and I'm going to read that for you. So if you have your Bibles, it's Ecclesiastes 6. Ecclesiastes 6. I'll give you just a moment to find it. This is one of those fun moments where you all go running around to grab a Bible. Or perhaps just sitting very still knowing that I'm going to read it to you anyway in just a few moments. <laughs> While reading 7 to 12 here, it says in Ecclesiastes 6 verse 7, All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Whatever has come, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives a few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Some chunks of scripture need a little more discernment and a little more interpretation than others. Sometimes the language takes us a moment to really dig into. This morning, if you want a title, and uh, you know, I think a, a title is always a good thing because it helps you in your note taking. My title is, what are you living for? In fact, I think if you apply that question to this passage, that is a good question in interpreting what this passage is all about. What are you living for? This passage says, you know, all the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We work, we work hard, we earn what we can, but are we satisfied? In fact, Ecclesiastes has a couple of main themes. It talks about wealth, you know, building wealth. If you have an appetite for wealth that's not submitted to the Lord, when will it be satisfied? It talks about career. What are you building in your life? The things that you are committing yourself to. I think by and large, we think a career is a good thing to have. Better to be a workaholic than work shy but if you're a workaholic then you're not going to have time in your life for putting God first honoring the things that God has placed in your life like your husband or your wife your family your children your elderly relatives those friends that perhaps don't know Jesus it talks too about status. If you're always trying to become someone, if you're always trying to build your status, sooner or later, that becomes the most important thing to you. 
And when that becomes the most important thing to you, the status of God in your life becomes lesser. When you spend all of your time trying to seek power, to be in charge, to, to take control, are you giving the best that you have to the Lord? Are you letting him be the Lord of your life? That's what we pray, isn't it? Lord Jesus, I'm inviting you into my heart to become the Lord of my life. Perhaps you've never reflected on the significance of that phraseology. My Lord and Saviour. That's who we invite Jesus to be. Saving us from our sins, but what else? Well, being the Lord of my life. That matters. If Jesus is the Lord of my life, I'm not. And I think that's a blessing to us. Lastly, it talks about pleasure. And uh, we can live our lives seeking pleasure. But our lives are finite. And what will you have achieved if you achieve pleasure and nothing else? This one I often hear parents talking about. Well, what do you want for your children? I want them to be happy. The Bible speaks very clearly that a little suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces faith. So parents, do you really want your children to be happy or do you want them to have faith and be filled with the joy of the Lord? Now, I don't think that that's meaning to say that your children are going to be miserable but full of joy regardless. But I think how we define our joy is the key. Are we going to define our joy in the light of Christ? Or are we going to define our joy as our own pleasure? As this is an Old Testament passage, are we going to put God first, the King of heaven and earth first? Or are we going to put our own pleasure first? What matters more to you? Is it you? Or is it God? Repeatedly, the word hevel is used throughout this passage. In fact, it goes on and it says, everything is hevel. You might not have come across this word before. Some would translate it vapor or smoke, but it's used 38 times throughout this overall passage throughout Ecclesiastes and it refers to how the things we are seeking for are temporary and fleeting an enigma or a paradox but there is a great equalizer which is death everybody dies rich poor strong, weak, outside of God, what is the guarantee over your life? I think the question of the meaning of life isn't a new question to us. 
<laughs> what am I here for? What's the point? What's it all about? Why would I come and sit in church in the midst of a pandemic wearing a face mask? Feeling uncomfortable. Why would I choose to give away 10% of that which I have to the church? Why would I give up my free time to come to a place to serve other people who I don't know? Other people's children, perhaps through something like Children's Connect, as Barbara was just talking about. Why would I do that? Why would I help the poor and needy? Why would I bother with other people? You see, lots of people have lots of good reasons for the good things that they do. But primarily, I think what Ecclesiastes is challenging us to consider is, is it wealth, pleasure, career or status that you're seeking to serve? One of these four things, wealth, pleasure, career or status, or are you doing it for the glory of God. In other words, wealth, pleasure, career, and status, are you serving yourself or are you serving God? You see, the world is not a fair place. It's always fun to look around a room when you make a big statement like that. Some people nod, some people look very upset. They like to believe in concepts like meritocracy, the idea that based on your merit, your hard work, you'll advance. If meritocracy was a defining principle of the society we live in, equality would not be a word that we would be nearly so familiar with. And if you enjoy the concept of equality, do you enjoy the concept of equality with a true sense of what that word means. How do you define it? Do you define equality of outcome? Do you appreciate the fact that actually equality of outcome doesn't really speak to meritocracy at all? If we all have an equal outcome, but some have worked a lot harder for that, and some have needed a leg up for that, the outcome doesn't reflect the input of personal sacrifice, hard work, study, time, commitment to a cause. Or do you mean equality in the big vague sense that everybody should have an equal opportunity? We should level the playing field. Again, if we level the playing field, there are all sorts of things that we can't level. One person might be very good at gymnastics, another person might be terrible. If we're trying to say that everybody should have an equal opportunity, a bit as, well, you've probably heard the, the saying, if you ask a frog to climb a tree, it's not gonna manage very well. And do we want frogs to be really great at climbing trees or are we happy for that to be other animals like monkeys? You see, you can't compare a frog with a monkey. It doesn't work. And so very quickly, this idea that there is an unfairness to the world, heaven, the great equaliser is death. Everybody dies. Another great equaliser is Jesus Christ. You see, whether you sin a lot or a little, 
Righteousness dictates that you're going to hell. In fact, Jesus says himself, there is no way, no way to get to the Father except through me. And so this gift of security, the love of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, the gift of salvation in light of righteousness matters all the more. For the Old Testament believer, the idea that you've got to try and live up to God's standards. And yet there are people who gain a great deal in life, although they behave in a way that is the opposite to God's holy law. That seems confusing. And I think that confusion continues today. Why do bad people prosper and good people suffer? Well, because of the fall, because we live in a fallen world, because Jesus is coming to establish his perfect kingdom. But until he does, we live in an imperfect world. And so the message of Ecclesiastes is a question. What are you living for? Too readily, I think we begin to live for wealth, pleasure, career and status without even realising it because the world defines these things as successful. Never before has a generation been so inundated as this one with messages of comparison. You can scroll for five minutes on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. I mean, name a platform and you can find someone who has more money than you, is having a better time than you, has a better career than you, and who has more status than you. You can see where they've put their money. It might even be that they don't really have the money that it looks like they have. You might see them in a supercar driving down the road. You might see them at a fabulous looking afternoon tea. They might have posted about the brilliant new job that they've just secured on LinkedIn. You might look and see that their follower count is in the tens of thousands and think, wow, what an amazing platform that they've got. And you see, the problem is, as this passage points out, and the passages around it, wealth leads to stress. There's the maintaining of wealth, the dependence, the challenge of leaving it all behind. What do you do with it? A responsibility placed upon your shoulders. And things lessen. You know, there's a depreciation of the money that you have. You have to keep maintaining it. There's the appreciation issue. As you have more, you begin to appreciate what you have less. You're looking for the next thing. And this goes on. Pleasure. You might think, well, pleasure, I, I can get on board with pleasure. My life would be better if I could just go on holiday. Everything looks brighter and sunnier on holiday. But Monday always comes. The holiday always ends. The, in fact, the very thing that makes a holiday pleasurable is that it's an escape from the norm. Some people do this with the weekend. They say, I'm living for the weekend. 
I'm living my best life. <laughs> and then they go out, and by the time the end of the month comes, there's more month than there is money because they've partied hard, they've lived for the weekend. And what about those people who hate their jobs? What about those people who have no joy in what they do? Those people that, that are only working for their paycheck. Career. Some people want to build their career. Have you seen ever in your life a person who takes a big step forwards in their career? They make a big, bold step. And as you watch them doing it, a few months later, you keep observing their life and you see some other area of their life crumble into chaos and dissatisfaction. Or for the person who doesn't celebrate the fact that they've got this big promotion because they're already looking at the next thing. And I don't think that ambition is a bad thing. I think ambition is a wonderful thing when it's yielded to Christ. In fact, we should be ambitious for the kingdom of God. We need to be ambitious for the kingdom of God. We need to be ambitious because God's plans are so much bigger than our plans. If we limit ourselves to what we can see and hear and think, we're never really going to appreciate all that God has. Perhaps you've heard it said, do something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. I think the person I heard dispel that myth most concretely was the founder of Apple who said that he loved what he does every single day of his life, but he's never worked harder. In fact, if you love what you do, but you're not working for it, if it isn't hard work, I would suggest that you're not accomplishing as much as you could be. And lastly, who will you be when the sun goes down on your life? When it all comes to an end? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? You build your career, you build something really big and successful. Well, if it's not in God's plan, that's not going to be sustained. I think the secret of longevity is something that we have undervalued in our instantaneous culture. I want it now. I need it now. Let's build a thing. Let's build it bigger and better. But are we keeping an eye on longevity? I think that's one of the great secrets of the church. Longevity. And I think it's because our founder still lives. God will build his church. I'm so grateful that this isn't my church. I might be the pastor of Stone and Ainsford Baptist churches. And as we're doing this work together to see if we can bring more people into the family of God, I'm so grateful that this belongs to God. If nothing else, it would be anxiety-inducing if it were my responsibility. 
The days that it goes well would be euphoric and the days that it goes badly would be soul-destroying. But more than that, knowing that the future of the church is not dependent on me or you, but it is dependent on us collectively as the people of God, is a remarkable thought. You know, God's best thing, God's best thing, the thing that God himself dies for, his bride, the church, that's what you and I get to be a part of. And as this passage goes on, as it talks about things like status, I would just point out that actually so much of life people end up looking at the elite, looking at the 2% and the simple probability of mathematics would indicate that the 98 can't become the 2 because then it wouldn't be the 2%. We live in a wealthy country with extreme wealth on our doorstep and it can make it easy to look towards that. Status, perhaps status isn't financial in your mind, perhaps it's leadership, perhaps it's power. We live in a world that has a global significance placed on certain people and countries that have the ability to do great harm or great good. The people that have this power carry great weight. I want to suggest to you that actually when their time comes, it doesn't matter how powerful they were in the year 2022. But when we talk about the things that we do now echoing in eternity, that isn't just good rhetoric, that isn't just a big concept to try and inspire a few people to do a few things more than they might have done otherwise. That's not trying to tell you, hey, get involved with Children's Connect because we need to build that team up. That's a spiritual reality. The things you do now have the potential to make an eternal significance. You might be sitting in church this morning feeling chilly. You might be sitting in church thinking, gosh, the kids are noisy. You might be sitting at home on the sofa thinking, yeah, okay. <laughs> He's saying that thing again. You might be sat wherever you're sat, surrounded by whoever you're with. Thinking, well, that... You know, that sounds very grand, but what does that really even mean? And I would just suggest this to you. What does that even mean? Well, actually, you have more power and influence because of the one that you know than anyone else. Every one of us is a leader. Perhaps you've heard that said in church as well. Every one of us is a leader. You see, these statements are true because you know Jesus, and because you know Jesus, you have the opportunity to intercede for those who don't. You can pray for them. 
You're talking to the king of heaven and earth. What greater status is there than being the son or daughter of God? This passage is warning against putting our hope in status outside of following God's rules. But for us, the New Testament believer, I think the warning is even more stark. Are you placing your hope in something that is outside of Christ, outside of his plan and purpose for your life? If you are, then I think that this is a great moment just to check your spirit, check your heart. What are you placing your hope in? Are you correctly seeing the place that you have, the status that you hold, the person that you are in Christ? You see, someone who has great power in the world today might have the wealth to eradicate hunger. They might have the ability to bring forward great vaccinations that help people live happier and healthier lives. But I'm most interested in the eternal significance of your life. You know, those are great things. And if ever you have the opportunity to make somebody's life better, I think that that's a great thing to do. The word of God talks about how the poor we will always have with us and how we're taught to care for those who are a part of our church and our community, our families. But there is always need in the world because the world is broken and passing. And so when I say we can do something that will echo in all eternity, what I mean is every time you share your faith, every time you take a moment and you point someone to Jesus, every time you encourage somebody who might otherwise have not taken that next step with Christ, you're doing something that echoes in eternity. This question, what are you living for? Well, when we begin to consider that vanity and striving after the wind is a wonderful turn of phrase, but too often it's been our want. We get too easily sidetracked by secondary and meaningless and insignificant things. Wisdom, from our earthly perspective, even is meaningless. Because when our wisdom is not submitted to God, when it's not God's wisdom in our lives, then we are seeking to share wisdom through a flawed perspective. What will your words build? What are you seeking to build up and tear down? Are you building the kingdom in submission and faith to God? Or are you building a stronghold in your life that is apart from him? I think it's less a question of what but a, than of who. Who will you be? Who will you serve? Who will you reach with the good news of Jesus Christ, our Lord? You see, wealth is empty when we can't take it with us. Pleasures are fleeting compared to the pleasure of being in heaven, worshipping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. A career is a short-term win in the light of eternity. And status is meaningless when the opinion of those around us 
we begin to recognize matter so much less than the audience of one that we're choosing to live for. It's easy to share a lot of words, to become vain in thinking we know what we know. In fact, I would suggest that each one of these words, each one of these words, wealth, pleasure, career and status, are something that can be yielded to God and to his glory, but so easily they become inroads for the enemy's attack. And whether you're retired and thinking, well, the career one, I don't need to worry about that. Well, I think you still do. Because I think if you've had a career and you've retired, your ability now to work for the Lord is the thing that's on the line. You might have more time than anybody else. For those of you that are working, you might think, well, what about me? I'm, I'm very busy. And honestly, I think words like this sometimes appear harsh or glib. But I think they need to be a spiritual health check to our soul. Are you too busy for God? Status, I think status is a thing that has hurt the church time and again. Someone thinks, well, I should be thought more highly of than I am. And they go out and they say, I'm going to do this, that or the other. I'm very important. People don't understand my importance. And it might be insecurity that's driving that. It might be a false sense of self. But too easily it becomes an inroad for the enemy's attack. Perhaps it's pleasure. Perhaps we think, oh... I work hard, so I want to play hard. I want to balance out my life that way. But if you're not resting at the feet of Jesus, if you always have to do an extreme thing to balance out the extreme work, or you're looking for that next best thing, you're always living for the next thing, then we begin to lose sight of the subtle benefit of a moment with Jesus, of stopping of resting, of waiting a moment, listening a while. You know, some of the best quiet times I've ever had have been the simplest. In fact, I've heard it recommended time and again that you just find a seat in your house. Find that place that's going to be your place for you and Jesus. That you're going to go to regularly, daily, maybe even more than once a day. And spend time with the Lord. Wealth is another area that gets the church in trouble. How many times have you read something or seen something about such and such a person who's gone off the rails or done this, that or the other wrong? I'm sure that they don't go from being a great God-fearing man or woman one day to going completely off the rails the next day. I think this creeps in. I think we have to keep coming to the Lord for each of these things. We have to keep 
asking the Lord as the psalmist teaches, we keep keep saying to the Lord, search out my heart. Root out what isn't bringing you glory, that I might fully or more fully live as your son or daughter. And lastly, verse 10 says, whatever has come to be has already been named and is it, it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. I'm so glad that God is our judge. You know, a phrase like that doesn't automatically sound encouraging, does it? (laughs) I'm so glad that God is our judge. You know, as the church, we're taught to discern amongst ourselves right from wrong and to try and hold one another to an account as believers for the sake of unity, but also for the sake of one another, that we're trying to encourage one another in the things of God. When I've seen the church do that badly, it grieves my heart greatly because we have hurt people in the pursuit of living for God more fully. And when I've seen that go well, it makes my heart sore because I think the Father heart of God is being reflected through the people of God. But ultimately, we don't judge people. It's not our job to. Amongst ourselves, we're trying to keep a single-minded pursuit and passion alive in our hearts for the things of God. But ultimately, it's not our job to judge. Sometimes Christians have lost sight of what that means and they've thought, well, we just need to be really loving and before long we... We start compromising on some of the things God says because we think perhaps we're more loving than he is and we need to tell people about the love of God and not tell them about the righteousness of God and without righteousness love is empty but without love righteousness is harsh and so I'm so grateful that God is stronger than us. God will always be stronger than us. God is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is our judge. And how amazing is it that our judge asks to be our heavenly father, to take away all the sins of our hearts, all the sins of our lives. Every time that we've got it wrong, whether we were doing our best or not, he offers to take away those times that we've got it wrong. And so we have to then choose, will we put our faith in God? Will we allow him to take upon himself those things that we've done wrong and ask him to be our saviour, but not just our saviour, but to be our Lord? Because we can't keep living in those broken patterns. If we're asking him to be our saviour, he must also be our Lord. There are no words that we're going to be able to persuade the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords with. He's seen our whole lives. It's vanity to think otherwise. 
And what advantage would it be to you if you persuaded God that you are better than you are? It wouldn't. His holy, perfect righteousness, it isn't meritocratic. If it was meritocratic, we would be going, you know. <laughs> but because of the steadfast love of God, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we've got the opportunity to be welcomed into the kingdom, into the family of God. That's not fair, that's grace. And grace is worth singing about. I said I was wrapping up and, um, and here's just one final collection of words, not really even a thought. You see, in the Old Testament, the conclusion was fear God and keep his commands. This was the duty of the people of God because God will bring everything that we do to his holy judgment day. Every hidden thing, good and evil, he knows them all. For us as New Testament believers, I think it goes one step further. It's not that we fear God and keep his commands. That's the beginning of understanding. That's the beginning of faith. But we're invited to be his friends, his sons and his daughters. Not that we don't fear God, but that we fear God. We learn about who God is. We learn about his holy, righteous judgment. But at the same time, we learn about his love for us. These two things, hand in hand the love of God and the righteousness of God, making known the righteousness of God teaches us right from wrong, which we don't know. Sinful, fallen people, we don't know. But God isn't content to leave us as sinful, fallen people. In fact, he doesn't just teach us right from wrong. He loves us all the way into his kingdom and calls us sons and daughters. That is our identity in Christ. Not just as people who are found to be acceptable to God, but the family of faith. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, guard our hearts against all those things that would seek to draw us away, be it wealth, pleasure, career, or status, and help us to more fully embrace who you are. Father, help us to be rich in grace and kindness. Help us to delight ourselves in your presence. Help us to build your kingdom before all else. And help us to know you as our Lord and Saviour. in all things. In Jesus' name. Amen.